to How Does the Social Work? The season, this season of the podcast will be a collaboration between Brunel University Social Work Department and Ginger Giraffe, a user-led cooperative. My name is Dan Vale, and this is my colleague, Mariam Zanuzzi. Say hi, Mariam. Hello, this is Mariam. And we're from Ginger Giraffe. And for each episode, we're going to be joined by two of Brunel's Social Work students. So if our students could introduce themselves, that would be great. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Jade. I'm on my first year of social work at Brunel. Hi everyone, um, my name is Tadini and I'm also on my first year of social work doing a master's at Brunel. It just now remains for me to welcome our guests for today's episode. Our guest is Dr. Rini Singh. Rini is a systemic psychotherapist with over 25 years of clinical experience working with couples and families. She's also the founding director of the London Intercultural Couples Centre. Welcome, Rini. Um, thank you. And now you've met, written many textbooks and academic papers, but the one we'll be focusing on today is a chapter you wrote entitled Clinical Work with Intercultural Couples. Yes. And I wonder if you could start by just talking us through what you found. So thank you for that introduction, Dan, and lovely to meet all of you. And really, the chapter that I wrote was part of, of the handbook of family and systemic psychotherapy. I think it's called systemic family therapy in that context. And this is published by Wiley, but it's a collaboration mostly with American scholars. And I was one of the editors of this four volume, uh, very uh, new um, textbook. And um, the editor of the third volume, Adrian Blow, asked me if I would contribute a chapter um, entitled Clinical Work with Intercultural Couples. And that really, and I asked three other experts in the field of intercultural couples to join me in writing this article. One of them is Kyle Killian, and he's an American scholar who's done a lot of research and work in this area. And the other two are Haram Bugen from Australia, and then one of my former master's students from the Institute of Family Therapy, Christine Singh. So I thought it covered quite a sort of wide range of cultural contexts our chapter in the book. And really the chapter summarizes contemporary research in the area and the literature. And it focuses on the themes and processes that intercultural couples face, also assessment and treatment interventions um, when working with such families and couples. So that's just a little bit about the chapter. We have our first question from Jade. It's a great chapter, by the way. It was really interesting to read. So my first question was, what inspired you to advocate so heavily for clinicians to, who are working in you know, that field to kind of acknowledge the challenges that are faced specifically by intercultural couples? Like, what was the... Yes. Sure. Well, actually, about six years ago now, I set up the London Intercultural Couples Centre um, at the Child and Family Practice, where I'm based as a clinician. And the reasons were twofold. One is personal. I was myself and still am in an intercultural couple relationship. And uh, I found that models of psychotherapy, traditional psychotherapy and counseling didn't sufficiently address the specific challenges and issues that intercultural couples faced. And which is, you know, not for a minute to pathologize intercultural couples or to assume that the issues are always of an intercultural nature. But I just don't think at that point that there was enough written in this area and enough thinking, enough um, research into this area. And so that that's kind of grabbed my attention and I started reading about this, thinking, you know, the foremost of my mind was really my own experiences and how difficult uh, 
challenging, I wouldn't say difficult, but challenging they were. And the second impetus was that I guess the UK and all over the world actually intercultural couples are becoming much more common. And I would find in my own independent practice at the time, I would just meet many intercultural couples. And again, I would turn to the literature and there just wasn't enough. So it was a combination of personal and professional, I guess, that led me to really focus on this, I think, very exciting and, and under-researched area. Is it worth at this point giving some kind of definition to what you mean by intercultural couples? Because I presume there's some complexity there. Absolutely. So by intercultural, what we really mean is um, couples where the partners come from different cultural backgrounds have been socialized sometimes in different cultural contexts. But as you say, it is really complex. And when I've taught about this topic all over the world, for one um, people will often say, but we're all intercultural, regardless of whether we grew up on the same street or not. There's so much, so many differences between partners that actually almost every couple could identify as intercultural. Um, also, when I've taught about this um, area, for example, in India, um, most people would think about it as an intercaste difference. So they'll say, oh, yes, we know exactly what you're talking about. You know, I'm Tamilian Brahmin and my husband is uh, from North India and that's intercultural. So it could be North-South divide and as well. So really, I guess it's partly how couples define themselves. But I do want to think a little bit as well about interracial couples. And I do think from my clinical practice and my reading, there is a little bit of difference between those who identify and could be identified as interracial and those who are intercultural, which is a much broader term, if you like. And just to say that, you know, this is true of um, lesbian and gay couples as well as um, heterosexual couples. So I guess I'm always mindful of the complexity as well as the meaning, what this means to different couples and what sense they make of the word intercultural or for that matter, for, for culture and how it means different things to, to all of us. And presumably you're coming across lots of issues of power and power imbalances, yes. the role of gender and yes. parenting and identity. Um, yes. and, and these, I guess, are things that in therapy you, you're dealing with anyway. Um, but what particularly about um, being an intercultural couple would drive people to sort of need an intervention, do you think? Well, again, to go back to my sense of sort of um, power differences in interracial couples, I do think that those are specific um, and slightly different from power differences that would face other couples maybe. So that, for example, especially in the wake of Black Lives Matter and everything that happened um, in the last couple of years, I've had even more couples refer themselves to me because they're struck by the, the impact of racism on one partner of the couple and maybe sometimes the lack of uh, support, lack of understanding of their white, shall we say, not, although it's not always um, a white partner, but often, or somebody from the host culture, wherever the, the host culture is, you know, specifically thinking about either of migrant couples, where one, uh, couples where one is a migrant, or even in couples where one, where both have grown up in the same country, but they feel that there is a, a racial difference between them. And often they don't find that that's accepted enough or that it's easy enough even just to talk about it. And sometimes having a space in therapy, creating a safe context where couples can actually address these issues without feeling that they're blaming each other or 
lead for it to lead to even more misunderstandings, I think is, is one of the, the reasons why a specific inter intervention is important. And I guess the other issue is issues of bringing up a mixed race child um, or a dual heritage child in a society that can be quite discriminatory sometimes. Um, and I think these, these are the two main reasons why the power differences, I think, are slightly different uh, for interracial couples, if you like. But even in intercultural couples, I think the power differences at, at lots of different levels. For example, where is home is one example, you know, and I think I wrote about that, that in my chapter. It's certainly something that I come across a lot in my intercultural couples that can lead to a difference in power, where which, especially where one is a migrant, where do they choose to, to make their home? How do they come to that decision? Who has the power to do that? What does it mean for the migrant partner to um, have less contact with one set of parents, um, grandparents, uh, where there are children involved? You know, um, what are also what are the sort of dominant discourses around? So power at that level too. What are the dominant discourses around parenting? And how is one, one partner's ideas about parenting, about relationships with the extended family, about what it means to be a couple, how come that's given, uh, how come that's privileged in a way that the other partners uh, doesn't, is, it sometimes gets marginalized. So I guess there's power really at the level of dis racism and discrimination, but there's also power at the level of whose ideas prevail. And of course, if your parents or, or parents-to-be where do you get support in, in constructing or navigating your way through these discourses in preparation for bringing a new human into the world? It's a, it's a really interesting question in, in each country, isn't it? It absolutely is. And what I find fascinating is that many of the intercultural couples I work with come in for help at sort of different stages of the family life cycle. And it's pretty much across the family life cycle. But the more sort of salient periods are firstly just before they're choosing to make a commitment or, or to get married. And that's because there's often issues to do with uh, religion, uh, being cut off from one set of parents, conversion, if it's um, uh, Islam or Judaism, especially, you know, what kind of wedding to have. So all those issues sort of come to the fore then, how to sort of deal with extended family relationships. And then there's another sort of transition point that seems again, quite challenging for intercultural couples, and that's when they choose to have a child. They, you know, one partner's pregnant, and they're about to have a child. And then the issues around, again, you know, where to live, where is home, whose language to adapt to, whose religion becomes more important. And so that's why, in fact, I think that intercultural couples can really be helped by having a sort of very planned series of sessions for want of a better word they're not entirely clinical but they are sort of preparatory work for these transitions including parenting you know so they can clarify their ideas and it goes on across the, the family life cycle there there are of course nowadays many step families and blended families and they come with particular challenges and then there's also it doesn't stop there's also old age and retirement and again where is home so where would they want to retire to how would they want to live, you know? So it all becomes really poignant for these couples and, and often, you know, carries a lot of pain as well, especially if they've been cut off from one side of the family and losses of country, losses of religion, losses of culture for, for the families. I think Tadini had a question. I believe that you did some practical work in India, I believe it was family therapy. 
Yes. And I wanted to know how the community in India received and reacted to this particular type of therapy. You mean to family therapy or to systemic therapy? Family therapy that you did. Yes, and and couples therapy, actually. So I worked in India for a while. It was a long time ago. But, you know, even at that point, many years ago in my career, I actually found it fascinating. And there were so many themes that were just quite different from what you can read about in textbooks. One of them is this whole theme of intercultural uh, couples. And in fact, even marrying somebody of one's own choice could be viewed by the parents as something that was really, you know, taboo. And especially if it was across community, caste, religion, Hindu, Muslim marriages are still really quite taboo. So that was the sort of level of rules and and sort of, you know, ways of doing things were, were quite different from, you know, what one can read about in textbooks or one can expect in the Western world. So that was one huge difference. Another huge difference was um, childhood and the construction of childhood. And in fact, in my practice, I didn't have a lot of young children in the way in which I do here in the Western world. There were very few children below the age of 12. And to sort of speak up against anything that your parents say, it was still quite hierarchical, you know. So it was quite hard for children and adolescents to speak openly about their parents in front of them. But there were also more fundamental differences in sort of the ways in which mental health talking cures are conceptualized. What does therapy mean? Still a very new concept, still a very alien concept. And there's a desire for the therapist or the professional to take on a much more directive role. They're almost sort of sought out as family elders or religious leaders who are sort of supposed to guide you. So the sort of more contemporary not knowing collaborative approaches that we have in family therapy, and I'm sure run across other models of therapy, didn't really seem to fit with that context. Whereas if you did something much more concrete and much more directive, there was a better fit, you know? So one had to adapt those models. But so there was a sort of difference in the way in which therapy was conceptualized. But of course, there was a huge difference in the way in which family was conceptualized. So both those words, family and therapy, had very different meanings in the Indian context. And families are often, again, stereotyping a little bit maybe, but often larger. The couple relationship is much more embedded within a patriarchal, hierarchical system, you know. So um, these were sort of quite striking differences, even in, in sort of the ways in which children were treated, pretty much indulged until the age of about five uh, the expectations around behavior outside the home and academic achievement were somewhat different, you know. So really, I guess, and that's what I meant by the dominant discourses and in intercultural couples, all these ideas around family life and parenting just seem quite different. Do you feel that it's very interesting, this idea of these dominant discourses and those kind of conceptual things that are floating around under that? Because you could argue that in Western countries, things have become much more individualized and we feel it's our onus to ourselves individually take on these big life events, psychosocial stresses, I guess, which might be the things that lead people to to, to ask for or, or to, to need therapy you know, marriage and moving and having children and becoming disabled or having a parent who becomes disabled or having a health problem or losing a job, all of these things which will happen to everyone sooner or later. You know, in the West, we got quite an individualised approach to it. And that, of course, has advantages and disadvantages. And so it's quite difficult to avoid having implicit judgments about 
what's right and what's wrong. You know, so for example, all the evidence in social research shows that having social support is very protective against harms. But quite what that social support is, of course, is kind of culturally sensitive and specific, isn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, that sort of brings to mind a really interesting study about uh, schizophrenia and relapse from it in Africa. And what the study showed is that actually the relapse rate um, from a sort of major psychotic episode was much lower in, you know, in the UK or in the US. And the researchers sort of hypothesized that one of the reasons for that could be, you know, precisely that there, there was much more, there is much more social support around, but also those who have a breakdown of some sort are, are much better tolerated. And it's almost just seen as sort of part of the fabric of society. That's what one person in the family is going through. And that's kind of uh, seen as more okay. They're not that, as isolated and they're not as, you know, sort of pigeonholed. It's just part of, of what happens in families. Somebody might be disabled, somebody might have a mental illness, but it's not really seen as a mental illness per se. It's more seen as, you know, a problem that, that can be overcome or can be lived alongside. So it's, it's just a different emphasis, I guess. That's part of a larger system, which is often a family system. Yeah. And in the community, you know, and having, you know, you're talking about social support, but having sort of a community of uh, grandparents and aunties and uncles and uh, the clan around a person, as you mentioned, can be really, really protective. That research, for me, problematizes social work because mm. social work is statutory. It's not really community in the way that we think it is. And so I don't really think at the moment it could really be seen as being part of the milieu of social support that disabled people or people with mental health issues might immediately reach out to. So, I mean, I, I find that quite fascinating in that I, I kind of vacillate between am I helping or am I hindering? <laughs> and depending on my own contact, I shift. Yes, yes. That. Yes, but you know, having said that, I'm thinking about a lot of, say, South Asian families whom I've worked with over the years, and for some of them, actually, the professionals become their family and their social support network, and actually, those relationships are so, so important and can make the difference between just being able to um, to feel better, to get better, for their children to feel safer for them to feel safer from intimate partner violence. So I guess it can work both ways. And certainly, I guess, and you would know much better than, than I do about the field of social work at the moment. But I think that there are also lots of really positive things that my clients, at any rate, find about having professionals there to witness and to help them. Yeah, I, can I, I'd just like to piggyback off that, actually, because um, when you think about, especially more London in particular, it's such a busy, everyone has such busy lives. Yes. Um, just trying to you know accommodate for for their lifestyle and I think when you do have you know people that need the extra support it can be lacking so like you're saying the social workers or the professionals do become that extra support that they may need especially we've got lots of cultures living mm -hmm. in the city and some not all of them are yet are happy to have to support people with extra needs they it's still kind of a taboo in a lot of cultures so sometimes the social worker or any professional is needed where you know some of them aren't getting the support from their family absolutely and i think the pandemic has kind of brought so many of these issues to the fore you know and um the fact that we can work remotely i think has 
in many cases, really been helpful. I mean, the pandemic, as we all know, has just sort of, for most, not all, but uh, for a lot of the families that we work with, has just brought so many stresses and strains and difficulties. And then having a professional network who, you know, you can reach remotely, I think, you know, our clients have really found that useful, which is not to say it's ideal. There's lots more that one could do, but I think it has been really amazing and also to be able to work, you know, across different countries and across different contexts. And, you know, that's been quite remarkable, I think. Really, do you, do you find that you have more, more people coming to, to you for support where one of the inter, intercultural couple is from a dominant or host community? Um, and therefore, in some ways, there's an issue of whether them, they're sort of being advantaged. And I was wondering if there's a difference between that and couples where actually both are from a minority community yeah. just may be very different culturally yes I, I do have that quite a lot and I think especially because I work in London where there are people from lots of different countries who choose to make their home in London and the issues are you know different if, if they're both uh, migrants and they both have families in, in different cultures and then I guess other issues about power and power differences sometimes come into play you know and again, there's about sort of racial differences or being from, you know, what kind of country has a sort of better, more resources maybe, you know, or about class. And in fact, you know, some of the intercultural couples who come to our centre identify themselves as intercultural because they come from different class backgrounds. So regardless of whether they're both uh, migrants or they both um, grew up in this country, I think that's another level too. But yes, I mean, the issues become, you know, for two migrants, they become about sort of what language to speak in at home. That becomes really important, especially, you know, if, if one is, say, German and the other is Russian. In fact, that's one of the couples I worked with where they came from different countries. And, you know, the whole issue was about uh, which language to bring up their children in. So, yes, the issues are, are somewhat different, but, but also similar. Can I just say something in terms of language? Sure. Um, so from my personal experience, I have a, a brother who is Sri Lankan and his partner is half Portuguese and half English. Um, recently, they've had a baby together. So I have my nephew and my brother's partner is very much. She wants to encourage my nephew to learn to speak Portuguese, English and Singalese. Mm -hmm. However, my brother, if you asked him how he would identify himself as, he would say he's British. If you asked me, I would say I'm Sri Lankan. So my question is, does, depending on how one of the partners or both partners identify themselves to their culture, do you think that would impact their possible children and how they might struggle with their own identities? Yes, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the identity issues come up so often for the adolescents I work with and then represent challenges for the parents. And I think that, you know, it's still sadly often up to the mother usually, um, regardless of whether she's from a, you know, migrant or minority, uh, minoritized background to kind of keep up with the language and culture of her own country. And that can often get lost in parenting, if there isn't enough support from her partner. I mean, it can work the other way around too. But often I think, you know, uh, parents will still um, want their child to sort of be a part of 
the dominant society and want to bring up their child with those views. Of course, as I mentioned, it's different when they both are migrants from different countries and then there are other factors at play. But, you know, certainly I think for, for children who gr grow up in this context with one partner, usually the mother from a minoritized background, it's quite hard sometimes for them to hold on to that identity. There are exceptions. I had a lovely family whom I think I wrote about in that chapter, and I've written about them elsewhere as well, who identified as Jewslim because they were part Jewish and part Muslim. And so they called themselves Jewslim and they had managed to really integrate wonderful aspects of both Judaism and Islam and the cultural identities of both parents. And again, as you mentioned, what was fascinating is how different people have different, different members of the family and different, and the siblings have had different relationships to their religion and culture. So within the same family, you can find one Muslim young woman who will wear a hijab and who is really religious and another one who really doesn't want to have anything to do with either parent's religion. So it's really important, I think, when you're, one is working with families to explore these differences. And as you say, the different relationships to one's culture and the parents having different relationships. And sometimes for one partner, when the culture has been, or the, the partner has, or the person, the parent has experienced their culture as being oppressive or being, um, you know, something that they really want to kind of move away from. They often seek refuge in the other partner's culture, the other partner's language, the other partner's family, the other partner's religion. And that's really striking too. So I think, again, one of the couples whom I wrote about in that chapter, who was part of a research study that I carried out, he was, his language was Spanish. He was from South America and she's from a white English background. And, you know, she actually learned Spanish to try and, have a bilingual household and wanted to teach the children Spanish and wanted to speak to them in Spanish, but he wanted to distance himself even from the language because it represented abuse, it represented other things that he really didn't want to remember. So there's a way in which, which I guess one can adapt to, to the other partner's language and maybe that's part of the sort of maybe not completely conscious reason for seeking out a partner from a different cultural uh, religious background, linguistic linguistic background, that you can get some distance from your own as well. From a sort of therapeutic point of view and thinking about the children's identity and development, is that problematic if you're, if you're the child of someone who has sort of rejected their own heritage for whatever good reasons they may have? Have, have or I think that it can be problematic. At the same time, you know, one shouldn't pathologize it. I think that there's something about the richness of both cultures and the sort of adaptation to it and the sense that one is comfortable. The parents, both parents are comfortable with their own identities. And I also think that sometimes these things really can be played out in subsequent generations. It may not be evident so much between the parents or in their relationship. And I'm thinking about one particular family I worked with where the mother's Italian and the father was mixed, mixed race, mixed, mixed heritage. And they came in for a problem to do with their six-year-old boy. And, you know, as parents will often do, they often come into therapy because they identify one of the chi children as being the problem. So they insisted that he was ADHD, but actually the boy didn't seem to B-A-D-H-D at all, and that was just the label. So I did a cultural genogram, which is something I'll often do with parents. And their the couple of relationships seem fine too. So my hypothesis is that it might be something coming from previous generations. So I did a cultural genogram with both of them. 
And it turned out that the mother, even though she's Italian, identified as Swiss because she had lived in Switzerland with her own family until the age of six. And then she had come, her family had moved back to um, Italy, but very tragically, the father had died. In the meantime, she'd also, they had lost her younger brother um, who died at the age of two. So the six-year-old boy was exactly the same age that she was when she moved back to um, Italy. And she hated Italy and she described it as dirty. And she said that she used to pick up all the rubbish from the streets and put it in her pockets because, you know, she just really couldn't adapt to it. And as soon as she could, she moved to, to London and made that her home. Anyway, when I asked this family who their six-year-old boy reminded them of in the family, which is a question I'll often ask, they said that he was a little Italian and he was a lot like the Italian side of the family. So that really sort of gave me ideas about the identity. And by the end of the work, this family had got an Italian au pair. She had really, her relationship with her own mother had changed and they were even thinking of moving back to Italy. So I didn't work specifically with my hypothesis or what I found in the cultural genogram, but something about her relationship with her own culture really helped to shift her relationship, all the relationships really in the family, you know, and this child sort of stopped being disruptive at home and at school. So, yeah, I mean, sorry, a very long, long way. Oh, that's great. Great, great out, uh, outcome. Yes. And just for, for listeners who are interested in genograms, because it's a it's an area of practice that's shared by both therapists and social workers. That's it's a right. way of, yeah, it's a way of visually describing the relationship, the intimate relationships between um, someone who comes in and their family. And it covers things like, well, I mean, you can say, but I mean, presumably. Yes, 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 I know it's, it's a method that I think family therapy borrowed from social work. And really for us, we look at sort of transgenerational patterns, what we call transgenerational patterns. So we're interested in thinking about what's handed down from one generation to another. And some of these could be secrets, some of these could be trauma, some of these could be very difficult things. And Hardy, uh, Kenneth Hardy and, and Tracy Lasloffy adapted it in 1995 to being the cultural genogram. And they look, they, they ask people to use different colors to represent cultural differences in their families. And I find that really, really interesting. And when you look at it visually, um, you see all these different colors and then you can sort of tease out the differences even more. And that's how I used it with the, with the couple, the parents whom I described. Um, but yes, it's one of the sort of visual and representational methods I use a lot in my practice. And partly, I think, because, you know, especially for partners, especially when one's, one partner's first language isn't English, it's really helpful to have something that you can look at. So whether it's a cultural genogram, the emotion map, culture gram, and some of the other techniques I describe in that chapter, it's lovely for them to actually see what's going on. And, you know, other things like positioning lines, sculpts. So it doesn't just have to be something that you draw. But there are a range of ways in which, you know, one can kind of go uh, beneath the sort of uh, talking cures, if you like, and really sort of work with what's going on for the family. I mean, we should probably talk about language a bit, because that strikes me as being something that's really important. So you'll, you'll get couples where person A and person B are together, and they only speak in the, langu in the language that's the first language for person A, and is a second language for person B. And then you'll get somewhere person A and person B are together, and they only speak in language C, which might be the language of the host country. But yes. you've got an inbuilt advantage if you've got if you're using your first language, and also presumably some potential pitfalls in terms of being frustrated or 
or, or judging the other person if they're not fluently expressing their opinions. Yes, yes. So these linguistic differences are so, so important. So it's not just about what language you speak in, but how, as you said, how fluently you speak it, but also how words can have different meanings in different languages. And often I find, especially with a lot of my South Asian families, that their communication style is quite indirect. And they, what they really want to do is to preserve the harmony in relationships. So to be assertive or to challenge something directly would really not be acceptable in many families. And from, you know, again, stereotyping here, but a white English, whatever that means, perspective. And I see this with a lot of my couples. They'll say things like, please be honest or get to the point or, you know, be sort of concise. And in many cultures, you know, not just in South Asian cultures, but in many cultures, you know, you're not concise and you speak a lot of, you need a lot of words to, to express yourself. So, you know, it's fascinating. But what I find when couples are parenting, then also their themes of sort of inclusion and exclusion and, you know, whose language is being spoken and what that means to the partner who doesn't have access to that language can really, really feel like an exclusion from the, the unit that becomes about the, the parent who, and the children. And again, I'm thinking about a, a family I worked with a while ago, where when they met, they both spoke in French. She's Moroccan, she's Australian, but her French was really fluent. And then when they had children, uh, she had assumed that they would bring up their children in French, but actually he wanted to speak Arabic to the children. And that really excluded her, even though she tried to learn some Arabic, it was quite difficult to learn. And, you know, this is a, a family that then there was intimate partner violence later on, and also violence by the father against the children and social services became involved but it was really quite sad because you know she really felt distanced from his religion his language his culture and you know quite powerless really i guess one of the questions that i that i have is to what extent then that does the culture shape the attitude of the person in terms of how they do intercultural relationships Sorry, can you say more? What would you mean? Yeah, so, so the, the social context obviously shapes how men and women will respond differently, but then it will also dictate to them how they manage intercultural relationships differently. Yes. Um, so I'm just wondering whether you had any reflections on that. And I think that that's the kind of that I, th I think it's the uh, it's the very thin divide that that separates social workers from psychologists and people in your field is that we are very interested in in the social construction of yes. people. Um, yes. So, yeah. Yes. Yes. So I think it's a really interesting question. And, you know, sort of brings me to my earlier point about not wanting to pathologize intercultural couple relationships at all, but really recognize the huge richness and advantages. And I think that especially when when parents or couples come from a point of view where they're thinking about this as a real strength and thinking about how they can bring up their children to have access to these different, you know, heritages, then that is the, the, the way in which their own relationship to their own culture, as well as their views on intercultural couple relationships as something really positive, would impact on, on the way in which they do these intercultural couple relationships. But the other thing that I've found that has actually given me lots of helpful ideas, and that's more recent than my chapter in the book, is a research project that I've been engaged in with some colleagues from, from Italy. And we draw on Valerie Ogazio, my Italian colleague's theory, 
and her theory is about different semantics. So different ways in which we, we sort of construct the world, you know, according to these sort of buckets of ideas, if you like. And the four that she looks at is semantics of freedom, semantics of good, semantics of power, and semantics of belonging. And we, we looked at um, 15 intercultural couples in our research study, and we looked at so-called monocultural couples as well, but, you know, I haven't sort of analyzed the monocultural couple relationship. They're doing that in, in Italy. But the results from the intercultural couple uh, relationships was fascinating. We're looking at semantic cohesion. So how much the uh, both partners of the couple drew on the same semantic and how much was different. And we found that, you know, not surprisingly, the highest semantic for all the intercultural couples was the semantic of freedom. And maybe there's something about how they love diversity, they love um, exploring, you know, for them, life is romance is an adventure. And then to seek out somebody from a different cultural background makes a lot of sense. They love travel. They love, you know, everything to do with, with being free, really. Um, and this, not again, not surprisingly, semantics of belonging was also really high amongst this group because they also love to create a home, be at home. And I guess it makes a lot of sense, especially for migrant um, folk who, you know, are far away from home. So home becomes something really important, but putting down roots becomes something really important. But not surprisingly, the semantic cohesion between the partners was lower than it is with the uh, monocultural, between the, the intercultural couples, they had lower semantic cohesion. And between monocultural couples, it was higher. So, you know, they do sometimes come from different semantic worlds. And I guess when we talk about language and communication, is this partly because of language? Yes, maybe, but just their ideas can be so different. So, you know, one could come from a semantic of power, the other could come from a semantic of freedom. And the differences between these two semantics could really be quite profound. And these are the couples who then will either come into therapy, well, they all were clinical couples, but they, you know, their relationship might not work. And the stuckness sometimes can be explained, I think. Um, from the fact that they just come from such different realities and ideas about how things should be. I think that's that, that to me is fascinating. I mean, my, my grandmother, uh, rest her soul, always used to sort of say to me, oh, you need to date someone that speaks a romance language because Farsi is a romance language. And so you kind of in, in your new, you can, you'll just get each other, you know, because there's just something about the fact that you've grown up speaking and expressing yourself in a particular way if you if you suddenly find yourself with someone that's kind of very we're not going to point out any particular cultures here but if if you go out with somebody who does not maybe have those flourishes you're sort of going to just struggle at just a basic communication level yes yes that's right that's right and you know also the ideas of just what a couple means you know romantic um, I'm thinking about a Bangladeshi client of mine who was uh, who'd grown up in this country and she she had married a Bangladeshi man from back home and she said that one of the problems is that she couldn't express and her uh, Saleti wasn't good and his English wasn't good and she said I, I can't even say I love you you know I don't know the the words in, in Saleti and they have a completely different meaning and you don't even say things I love you but you show that you care in some other ways and it, it felt quite sad, really, in some ways, because, you know, not to be able to express um, how you feel about your partner, because you're just speaking either in different languages, literally. And what is interesting about this Bangladeshi family is, you know, to go back to the beginning of our discussion, 
that was an intercultural couple, even though they were both Bangladeshi, they were both Muslim. But the fact that she'd grown up in this culture and he'd grown up in Bangladesh meant that they were so, so different. I think that's so interesting, the language aspect, because I'm from the Caribbean, well, both my parents are, sorry, and but they're from different islands. Uh-huh. And so the way of communicating was so different. I remember um, my dad, when if you know they say certain things in Jamaica that is normal to them, but yes. when my mom hears them, she's like, what's that? And yeah. I said to her, well, you need to remember that that's normal for them to say. And it might sound a little disrespectful to her. They don't say, they don't, they don't speak that way. They don't say certain things. It might yeah. sound more aggressive to her. So it's so interesting because I always say to her that like, you have to remember that. Yes. And I think that's sometimes people just, you go into relationships and you don't think about those key things that make such a big difference in the way that you'll communicate with each other. Yes, yes, yes. And yet we know that, you know, a lot of, couples who come to us for therapy or come to us for help it is all about communication isn't it that's so fundamental so i have a sort of personal bit of testimony here which is that my partner she's brazilian Mm -hmm. and her first marriage was to a polish man and they have a daughter and um your cement your four semantics um really really chimed with me because their semantics of freedom and belonging were absolutely the driver, I think, for them getting together. Um, but the semantics of power was was the thing that I think that they struggled with. And language really came in here because essentially my partner only wants, wanted to talk to her daughter in Portuguese from the beginning in order to sh- ensure that her daughter is completely fluent in Portuguese. Yes. The father, from the beginning, only wanted to talk to her, his daughter in Polish in order, because they both lived in London at this point, yes to ensure that his daughter was fluent in in Polish. Um, The English fluency would come from her being born in England and going to school in England. But but the mother didn't understand any Polish and the father did not understand any Portuguese. And therefore, when they tried doing this in a family unit, it didn't work because one person was always being excluded. They split up after only one year of being parents. And they are very happy now because my partner only speaks Portuguese to her daughter when she's with her half the time. She's totally (laughs) trilingual, by the way. And it yeah. works like a dream, but they would never, they didn't think this through beforehand. Now, yeah. should we be helping people to think through some of the... Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. In fact, you know, what I'd like, really like to do, one of the things I'd really like to do is to set up a sort of program for those who come from different cultural backgrounds and decide to get together and decide to parent together and to think about, you know, what the issues are, or even be step-parents, because, you know, it sounds as if you're your partner, your wife, and, and, you know, you have had a very harmonious way of resolving this issue. But actually, for, in step families as well, it can be immensely complicated, as I'm sure you, you know or can imagine. And so to have some sort of pre-preparation, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, premarital, it doesn't even have to be premarital, but pre-commitment work or a sort of fairly structured program, which is not therapy, but just is something that, you know, couples can do to kind of help themselves to anticipate some of these challenges, to be aware of these um, possible pitfalls without pathologizing them, just by saying, hey, look, you know, you fall in love with someone from a different cultural background. It may not be as straightforward as you think it, it would be. And look, here are some of the possible issues. And, you know, how do you think you can work through them before getting married? So I do that with some of my couples. And some of them will come with this specific thing. You know, we're thinking of getting married, but we just don't know how it's going to work out. But I'd like to sort of offer it as a sort of, you know, 
something that's not clinical necessarily, but just really something that people can kind of sign up for, you know. I think Sidney had a question about that and, and sort of stigma. Um, my question was, do you think that if there was more representation from the professionals and within the clinical work that it would encourage people to take part in therapy? And by more representation, you mean more therapists who identify as being in an intercultural couple relationship? Yeah, so that the participants could find some sort of similarity with them and make them more open to take part in therapy. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm always astounded by the number of referrals I get. I'm really happy about it. And I think they just come from the fact that I do put myself out there as being, you know, in an intercultural couple relationship and being aware of these issues. And I think that, you know, a lot of the couples, if they could also find a community of like-minded parents, I think that would be so helpful. So I do think some of it, I think you're absolutely right, is just about building community and helping them to feel that this is, you know, nowadays in this globalized world, this is just so normal. And there are lots of other people out there with the same issues, you know, so it doesn't even have to be professionals, although I like the idea of there being more professionals. I always struggle when people say, oh, so it's the London Intercultural Couples Centre. How many of you are there? And what are their racial and cultural backgrounds? And, you know, Actually, I do most of the work because, you know, lots of couples, lots of therapists don't really have the knowledge or the interest um, or the time, especially nowadays, or the experience. I absolutely, you know, to, to train up more professionals to do this work, I think would be great. Well, you could certainly argue that it would definitely be a strong argument to say that London is probably the intercultural couple capital of the world and the dual heritage kid capital of the world. Yes, yes. And so, why are we, so why are we not making more of that? Why are we not? Because it's not mon a monocultural kind of movement. No. Um, you're relying on people from different cultures coming together to create a movement that's celebrating diversity when, when still with the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, there's so much, you know, discrimination to fight against anyway. Maybe there's a sort of, there is a gap there and someone needs to be bold and, and take the lead. Yes, indeed. I mean, apparently 50% of, from by 2030, 50% of people in London will have been born in a different country. And the mixed race population is also really growing. So I think it, it would be great, you know, and there are some movements, if you like, and there are some sort of pockets of interest. But, you know, I don't think there's enough yet. And I think that people really should come together and try and find a way of making this more of a sort of acceptable way of of um, thinking and you know of doing couple relationships do you think then if there are more intercultural and interracial couples that over the next few years but do you think because of that discrimination towards them would reduce and there would be more acceptance and then then would they have less barriers within society I do think that that's a part of it, but, you know, I also think, and certainly I think that things have become a lot easier, even in the last, say, 10 years, uh, certainly from the time, you know, I started thinking about these issues, I think it's become a lot easier than it was, at least in London. I still think that if you go outside other places in the UK, there's still a lot of racism, even at quite an insidious level that intercultural couples face. And I think that that's partly because some of these ideas about what couple relationships are like are quite deeply embedded. So sort of, you know, birds of a feather flock together, for example, um, it's quite a sort of big one, isn't it? Or a sort of discourse of homogamy and, you know, how people 
should sort of stick to their own kind. I still do think that that's quite deeply embedded. I mean, Kyle Killian, whom I wrote the chapter with, one of the authors, he did some research quite a long time ago in America. And what he found is that interracial couples, and that's in America, um, often felt that they had to, when they were sort of passing through in a train through a sort of entirely black neighborhood or white neighborhood, they didn't even dare to sit together. They'd have to go and sit in separate carriages because they didn't want to be seen as being together, you know? And I know that's America, which is far more segregated in some ways, or some parts of America than we have here. But it is quite striking. And I still feel, I don't know if, you know, you have the same experience, all of you, when you sort of are in a public place, sometimes, you know, you do pick up that people are not sort of really looking at you as if you're a normal couple, whatever that means, or, you know, there, there still is, I think, some societal reservations to this sort of thing. And so I think that, you know, a lot of the couples I work with, the difficulties they face are at these two different levels. One is at the sort of societal level, and the other is at their own sort of um, interpersonal level. And sometimes these two both are problematic, and sometimes they could have a really good relationship in many ways, but, you know, what sort of worries them is sort of reactions from the extended family or from friends or from society. And sometimes, you know, it, it could be that everybody else in the outside world is okay and their relationship feels fraught for some other reason. It's, it's hard. And I guess that is very important in the, in the therapy, isn't it? That, that, that individuals don't feel that they're having to compromise or give, give away part of their identity in order to, to make the, the relationship a success. And of course, you know, you've got an asset to build with, which is, like you said before, that it's it's brilliant that they came together in the first place, recognizing and finding the diversity and the difference attractive and, and being energized by it. So that's, I guess, something to work with. Absolutely, yes. And that's what I always try and do as well, to help them to own it, you know, and also not to make assumptions that the reason why they come and seek help has to do with um, cultural issues, because it could have to do with something entirely different. Well, our hour is up. Thank you so much, Rini, for your fascinating uh, contribution. We will be, I'm personally going to dig out that research that you mentioned with your okay. Italian colleagues. Oh, yes. Oh, good. Well, we haven't really written that much about it. There's an um, article that's coming out in the Journal of Family Therapy on a, in a special issue on race and culture soon. And that's, that's a case example of one of those couples that describes these different semantics. But um, I can send it to you, if you like, when it's published. And, you know, watch the space because we're going to write a lot more from that research study. So, but thank you all. I've really, really enjoyed it. And it's provided me with lots of food for thought and lots of ideas. So thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Tadini and Jade and Mariam. Thank you for listening. If you liked our podcast, please give us a like and share it with your friends. We'll have another episode uh, in November. So stay tuned. This podcast is produced by Yohai Hakak and edited by Vimal Dalal. To find out more about Brunel University Social Work Programme, please check our web pages at brunel.ac.uk forward slash social dash work or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. To learn more about Ginger Giraffe, visit our website www.gingergiraffe.coop. Thanks very much and good evening. Thank you.